Hey everyone, I'm Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. This is season two of Fresh Invest, your favorite investing podcast sponsored by Fidelity Investments and powered by Morning Brew. There's a good chance today's topic is the whole reason you've been tuning into Fresh Invest. We're going to discuss the pros and cons of investing in cryptocurrency. If I had to pick one question the Morning Brew audience asks most frequently, it's probably this. Should I invest in crypto? If so, how and which one or ones should I invest in? It's on everyone's lips and tweet decks, and there's a lot to consider. There's certainly upside to be gained in crypto. The price of Bitcoin soared past a jaw-dropping 64000 this past April. And as we covered in episode three, crypto has gone from a techie obsession to fairly mainstream in recent years. But crypto also has downsides for reasons we'll get into in this episode. And because there's so much to keep in mind, we're turning to our friend at Fidelity, Yurian Timmer, who is director of Global Macro. Welcome, Yurian. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Alex. So could you start by introducing yourself and talk a little bit about your philosophy on crypto investing? Yeah, so I am uh, the director of Global Macro at Fidelity, which is a fancy way of saying I look at the big picture, but from a traditional investment point of view, right? So I'm fairly new to the crypto space. I kind of went down a rabbit hole last December. And until that point, you know, I was strictly operating in the 60-40 world of stocks and bonds and other asset classes as well, but generally where most investors would be invested. And uh, I've been at Fidelity 26 years. I've been in the business 36 years. And out of curiosity, you said it was last December that you started going down the rabbit hole. Just talk a little bit about the experience. What have you come to learn about or think about this uh, Wild West of Bitcoin and crypto? Yeah, you know, it, it was a wild ride. I mean, uh, the parallel has been used with a lot of people that crypto is kind of internet 1990s. The internet stuff was a sideshow for many people, especially in my industry, because these companies back then were not in anyone's benchmark. They were not in the S&P 500. But then it gets bigger and then companies start getting added and it becomes part of the landscape. And I think similar situation has been with crypto, at least from my perspective. I'm in front of a lot of clients doing events. And again, when it's sort of out there in the distance and it's a, a couple of crypto punks doing this stuff, but it really doesn't apply to the general audience, there wasn't really that need to get involved. But then, of course, Bitcoin starts going up. Everyone starts asking questions. and I felt the need to have an opinion. And as you well know, it's hard to have an informed opinion on crypto without doing the work, right? You can't just kind of read a few articles for an hour and say, okay, I, I'm ready to go. It takes a, a pretty deep dive. Um, and so last December happened to be the time that I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. It was over the holiday period, over you know Christmas, New Year. So it was kind of a slow period in the market. And I did not come up for air for two weeks. I could barely sleep. I was so obsessed with it because, you know, you're peeling the onion, you learn things. And it's like, oh, I want to know more. And so I came out of this, in my view, with a decent understanding about what Bitcoin is. So that really was limited to Bitcoin because you got to start somewhere, right? And and it's been just drinking from a fire hose ever since. And I just last week did my kind of deep dive on Ethereum. But as quickly as I'm learning uh, the landscape evolves even quicker. And so 
for a lot of people who try simplifying what Bitcoin is or can be for investors and just for citizens, they'll explain it as a digital version of gold, a digital gold. Can you expand on why that comparison is made and if you think it is a fair comparison for Bitcoin? Yes, I, I do think that's a fair comparison. And it's interesting, when I went down that rabbit hole, I thought I was going. To, it was all going to be very hard to quantify and grasp because it's such a futuristic thing. And as a history geek, I was very pleasantly taken into another direction that in understanding the value proposition of Bitcoin specifically as a hedge against monetary inflation, if you will, um, I went basically a thousand years into the past yep. and looked at, you know, what is money? What role did gold play? How did gold evolve? You know, after we went from the gold standard to Bretton Woods to the fiat currency system. And so I found this very interesting parallel uh, where, you know, the, the past and the future kind of meet. And I think of it as the crypto space, obviously, in general, is about network effects, you know, Metcalf's law the blockchain, a whole new decentralized way of doing business in the world, including in the financial industry, but other areas as well. And Bitcoin, of course, rides that platform, but its built-in scarcity makes it more than that, right? So comparing Ethereum to Bitcoin, for instance, Bitcoin is much scarcer, but it's deemed less scalable. And then Ethereum is more scalable, but, but less scarce, although Ethereum 2.0 is trying to change that a little bit. But what's interesting is that I looked at gold. Gold used to be money, and gold would go up and down with inflation. But it didn't do anything more than that. And then in 1971, when the U.S. went off the gold standard, gold kind of came of age, if you will. It grew up, and it went on its price discovery path during the 70s. And it was a wild ride, just like Bitcoin's ride has been wild. Gold went up 20-fold with very large drawdowns, and it was a coming-of-age story because it went from being money to being an asset class. And I think Bitcoin is kind of in that mode where it's a teenager coming of age and teenagers are full of promise, but they can also wreck your car, right? So it's kind of that volatile price discovery mode. But I think that is Bitcoin's promise for the typical investor. I mean, it has promise for a lot of other applications as well. But I think for most typical investors in a world where real rates are negative and we have a lot of financial repression and a lot of monetary inflation. We all know the story about the Fed and other central banks. I think that's kind of its use case for most people right now. Yeah. And you bring up as a history buff how it was a really pleasant surprise to see kind of like that Bitcoin is very much part of a longer story of the history of money. And I remember having that experience as well. I, I think the book I was reading was The Bitcoin Standard. And it was basically this long education, not just about Bitcoin, but on the history of money and how the downfall of money has often been when uh, you see inflation of it, it loses its value, and money is generally defined you know, across time, space, and scale. And I think to your point, the, the interesting thing with Bitcoin is because there's 21 million Bitcoin, because it's easily divisible, because there will never be more than 21 million, it could have wealth preservation properties similar to gold. That said, there's still a lot of risk with Bitcoin. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as from a macro perspective, you assess this new asset class, but specifically Bitcoin. Where do you view the biggest risk to the asset right now? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. And by the way, there are some really great bits in the, in that book, you know, about the, the history of money. Yeah, oh, yeah. Really, really good stuff. But yeah, you know, I view the risks more as what are the obstacles to widespread adoption, especially institutional adoption, right? Um, and so one that people have mentioned, of course, is the regulatory risk. And I think the older and bigger Bitcoin becomes, the more contained those risks are because it's just... It's too big to just regulate out of existence. And also, once you're past the on and off ramps of U.S. You know, fiat dollars to stable coins to, uh, to Bitcoin, uh, it, it just becomes harder uh, to regulate. And my sense is, and I, and I know my colleagues at uh, FDAS, Fidelity Digital Assets, agree with that, is that regulation actually, I think, done the right way, of course, would be good for the space because it would legitimize the space, right? So if you're running the pension fund of a large corporate pension plan, once it starts getting regulated, if it's done the right way, it will have passed a checkpoint, if you will. The other obstacle, you know, has been the ESG consideration, and this is a widely polarizing subject, you know, so the, the, the hardcore Bitcoiners swear up and down that it's only wasted energy that is used and it's very, you know, ESG friendly. Other people will take the other side. Um, but I think that's an issue that is kind of going away on its own. You know, when China banned the Bitcoin mining, that kind of started to resolve itself. And I, to me, there's no question that the Bitcoins that were mined in China were not all dirty, but certainly there was parts of it. And, and we saw, you know, that news event happen. This, I think it was in May where a large coal-fired power plant in China went down and all of a sudden the hash rate like, you know, collapsed for a few days. So it's hard to not draw, you know, connect the dots on that front. But with China banning mining and with institutions obviously being very ESG-minded. I mean, you can't even get in the door these days as an investor or as an issuer of securities if you're not on the right side of history on this. So I think that's an area where the whole space will just move in the right direction just because the potential buyers will demand it. Yeah. So there's so much good stuff there. The one call out I want to make is uh, where you talked about regulation and actually if done properly, regulation can be a positive thing because I think a lot of people get very scared about regulation, assuming that, you know, entire countries are going to ban Bitcoin and it'll crush the network effects and like so much of the value prop. But I think to your point, regulation actually can be a good thing to make it feel more approachable because there's actual structure and governance around something, especially if you want institutional investors to get involved. How should retail investors think about if and how much exposure to Bitcoin they should have in their portfolio? And also, how should they know when they've done enough of the work to make an intelligent investment like this? Yes, it's a great question. And uh, I've done a lot of you know thinking about that. And I would say, uh, and actually, uh, my 24-year-old daughter was just over for dinner last night. She's a nurse. And she's like, I want to learn more about crypto. What should I buy? And I told her, you need to do the homework. Don't buy it just because it's going up. That is the worst reason to buy anything. And that's not limited to, to crypto. But it's a question of, again, through the lens of a 60-40 old-timer, I guess I should call it myself, where on this spectrum would Bitcoin live, right? And so if you have the crypto space and you have Ethereum and the network stuff, that kind of belongs on the extreme of the 60 side, right? That's like a venture capital type of investment. Bitcoin on its own, if it's a digital gold, if that's how you see it, 
To me, that goes on the 40 side of the 60-40 spectrum because we're in an era right now uh, in a regime of negative real rates, and I liken it a little bit to the 1940s, World War II, the debt to GDP went up a lot because uh, the U.S. mobilized the economy to enter World War II, and uh, the Fed was tasked with keeping rates below the inflation rate and absorbing that debt. So in that kind of framework, the Fed's kind of doing something similar. So it is holding interest rates below the inflation rate, which means that the 40 side of a 60-40 portfolio is losing purchasing power. And so in the old days, gold would fill that need, and it still can, of course, and it still does. But if Bitcoin is a new form of gold and silver as a protector of purchasing power, that's how I would think about where I would own Bitcoin in a diversified portfolio. So just uh, for our listeners who haven't heard the 60-40 paradigm before, can you just quickly share like, actually how to think about that and what is the 40 bucket versus the 60 bucket? That's a great question. So I, I should have specified that. But 60-40 is kind of a model. And, and for some, it's 70-30, others at 50-50. But the idea is you have the majority of the portfolio in stocks or growth assets, right? So stocks are the tried and true anchor in any portfolio because they are a play on growth and they are somewhat of a hedge against inflation, not like super high inflation, but they are a hedge. Um, so historically, stocks have uh, returned about 11% per year. Inflation historically has been about three. So the real return has been well above zero. So they have performed well above inflation. Over the past 20 years, we've been kind of in this disinflationary era where every time there's a shock that causes the stock market to correct, bond prices go up and bond yields go down. So the 40 has been a really good insurance policy against shocks to the 60. And until the current kind of the last 10 years, out of the 40, you would get a double whammy. You would get nice income, you know, 5%, 6%, 7% yields, and you would get that negative correlation against stocks. So you had kind of a win-win that protects your portfolio and earns income. Now, the income part is gone, so it's just the insurance part, but that's the 60-40. So you want to have enough in there to protect from shocks in the 60s, but not too much because the 60 is what drives the return over the long run. Yep, makes total sense. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of like these arbitrary price points for Bitcoin. You often see headlines in the journal, a bunch of business media, where when Bitcoin slips below a key price point like 30,000 or 40,000 right now, or it gets above 50,000 or 60,000, there's a ton of both conversation and momentum around it. Do these arbitrary price points actually mean anything? Should retail investors be focused on them? Should they be thinking about them as places to enter into potential buy and hold trades? How do you think about these kind of arbitrary round numbers? Yeah, it's interesting because we have the same conversation in the stock market, of course. And I always try to remind our investors, our clients that we should focus on value, not price, right? The price of something is just the price of something. Uh, you can buy a car for 10000 that is a great car, or you can buy a car for 100000 that's not a great car. So it's the value that we should focus on. And so same with the S&P, right? The S&P may be at 4000 or 3000 or the Dow is at 30000 But how much are we paying for each dollar of earnings is really the question. 
And so for Bitcoin, it's the same thing, but it's easier said than done, right? Because it is a, a new asset and how do we value it? And so 40,000 or 30,000 or 50,000 is kind of a meaningless number if you don't put it in the context of what its value is. And, and so that's always going to be a tough thing in terms of a new asset that's going through price discovery. But for Bitcoin, you know, we have the supply model, stock to flow. We have the demand models, Metcalf's law, you know, historical S-curves. We can look at internet adoption or mobile phone adoption in decades ago. And we can kind of draw those curves and to see where Bitcoin is along those curves. And so that's how I think about it. But, you know, it's human nature to anchor ourselves to these round numbers. And for instance, 30,000 ended up being very good support um, during this decline. And it so happens that that was exactly the level that my demand model said it should have been at the first place. So the 64,000 was an overshoot against that curve. But that's how I think about it. But it's hard, right? And so, you know, now that we're back at 50, it's like an anchor, right? So that's how we keep score, right? It's like birthday or an anniversary. It's like you keep score that way. So people can't be faulted for it. But ultimately, it's the value, not the price that matters. Absolutely. So today's question for Yurian is, could you explain as briefly as possible why crypto tends to be more volatile than, for example, something like the S&P? Because it is a brand new asset class going through price discovery, uh, just like gold was in the 70s, right? Gold just sat there for centuries and then it came into its own. And price discovery, by definition, is a period of volatility because you don't know at that point, like again, back to the 1990s, how do you know if something you're buying is a pets.com or an Amazon, right? And so we're in that Wild West phase where we don't know what the regulatory risks are. You know, we don't know whether adoption will take place at an institutional level. And so it's par for the course. Uh, and it's by definition volatile. And over time, the return profile will slow down and the volatility profile will slow down. The sharp ratio, which is the ratio of return to volatility, may very well stay the same, but the numerator and the denominator will kind of quiet down and grow up. Yep. Absolutely. So really exciting time, but a really early time. It's early in the life cycle of this asset, which has caused it to obviously be more volatile than a more mature index or asset, something like the S&P. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. And thanks to everyone for joining us today. I hope you feel like you now have a stronger grip on the various forces shaping the world of crypto and what to know before you possibly get involved. I personally think this is the biggest shakeup in the world of finance in the past decade. Could you imagine trying to explain something like Ethereum or Bitcoin in 2011? I can't. I really appreciate you listening today. See you same time, same place next week to talk SPACs with Fidelity professional John Galliardi. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey everyone, this is Erica again from Morning Brew. And as the producer of Fresh and Best, I'm here to let you know that this podcast was created on behalf of Fidelity Investments by the Morning Brew Creative Studio and does not reflect the opinions or point of view of the Morning Brew editorial team. 
Sources are provided for informational and reference purposes only. They are not an endorsement of Fidelity Investments or Fidelity Investments products. And on their side, Fidelity is the paid sponsor of this podcast, which includes providing Fidelity personnel for interviews and publications with Morning Brew Studios on content development. Fidelity and Morning Brew are independent entities. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The views and opinions expressed by the speaker are his or her own as of the date of the recording and do not necessarily represent the views of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Any such views are subject to change at any time based on market or other conditions and Fidelity disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Fidelity product. Neither Fidelity nor the Fidelity speaker can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss occurred by applying any of the information offered. Please consult your tax or financial advisor for any additional information concerning your specific situation. This podcast is intended for U.S. persons only and is not a solicitation for any Fidelity product or service. This podcast is provided for your personal non-commercial use and may contain copyrighted works of FMR LLC, which are protected by law. You may not reproduce this podcast in whole or in part in any form without the permission of FMR LLC. Fidelity and the Fidelity Investments and Pyramid Design logo are registered service marks of FMR LLC. Copyright 2021 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become a liquid at any time, and are for investors with a high risk tolerance. Investors in digital assets could lose the entire value of their investment. The gold industry can be significantly affected by international monetary and political developments, such as currency devaluations, revaluations, central bank movements, economic and social conditions within a country, trade imbalances, or trade or currency restrictions between countries. Fluctuations in the price of gold often dramatically affect the profitability of companies in the gold sector. Changes in the political or economic climate, especially in gold-producing countries such as South Africa and the former Soviet Union, may have a direct impact on the price of gold worldwide. The gold industry is extremely volatile, and investing directly in physical gold may not be appropriate for most investors. Bullion and coin investments in FBS accounts are not covered by either the SIPC or insurance in excess of SIPC coverage of the FBS or NFS. Indexes are unmanaged. It is not possible to directly invest in an index. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC, 900 Salem Street, Smithfield, Island, 02917. See you next time.